At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are involved in a study from the book of 2 Peter and chapter number 3. So I invite you to, to take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of 2 Peter and the third chapter. 2 Peter chapter number 3 in the New Testament. You know, it happened in 1984 in the cult classic sci-fi movie, The Terminator. And the Austrian-born actor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, by the way, in that movie, do you know that he only said 58 words? But in that movie, he uttered his most famous movie line, and that movie line was, I'll be back. Exactly. That's what he said. I'll be back. What is really interesting is that Jesus himself was really the first one to utter that idea. For example, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, the Son of Man is going to come again in the glory of his Father with his angels. Jesus was, in essence, saying, I'll be back. We see it also in Mark chapter 13 and verse 26, where Jesus is speaking and he says, they will see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. What Jesus was really saying is, I'll be back. So that's Jesus' message, I'll be back. And ultimately, that is the thrust of Second Peter chapter number 3. Peter is saying, despite there having been some delay from a human perspective, he'll be back. He'll be back. And he'll come back, as we learn from the New Testament, dealing out retribution, as it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. It will be, when he comes back, an era of destruction and desolation, as it says in Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 15. And it will be an unleashing of the wrath of the Lamb, as it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 and verse 16. And if you look at Revelation chapters 6 to 16, you can see a lot of the details of all of this era of time when he comes back. And it's possible we might wonder at that time, Will the body of Christ, will the church face all of these above things? It's a good question to ask, and many of us might wonder that question. Will we, as followers of Jesus, experience the end times wrath of God? And so before we look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and the closing perspective that he gives us, I want to address that very question. I want to remind us of what we saw a couple of weeks back, and that is when you look at God's wrath in Scripture, you realize there are three aspects of God's wrath in Scripture. There is consequential wrath. Remember when we looked at this? Which is God's punishment in this life 
to certain people as consequences of their evil choices. But also there is end times wrath in scripture. This is the wrath that's connected with the second coming. And then finally, there is eternal wrath, which is the lake of fire. So when it talks about wrath, we have to ask, what is the context of that wrath? And the question we really want to ask ourselves is, will the body of Christ be on earth to face end times wrath? And the answer, I believe, is no. And you say, well, where do you get that answer, Bruce? Well, let's look at a couple of passages. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says this. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So the context is the return of Christ. The context is this era of judgment and the day of the Lord. And then in verse 4, he says, you brothers, addressing the church, are not in darkness that the day, what day? The day of the Lord would overtake you like a thief. And then later on in verse 9, he says this, God has not destined us for wrath. So the whole context of all of this is end times wrath, and he states right there in verse 9, God has not destined us, the church, for wrath, for end times wrath. Another passage we could look at would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, which is all talking about the return of Jesus there. And it says very clearly, Jesus rescues us, the church, from the wrath to come. And then I want to look at one other passage in Scripture, which is Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. Now, Pastor Mark took us through this section a few weeks ago, which this section is dealing with the letter to the church at Philadelphia. But I want to remind you, when we went through that, Mark emphasized this, even though they were letters to individual churches, at the end of every letter, like for example, here it would be in verse 13, he said, I want you to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural. So what was in these letters are lessons and principles, not just for one church, but for the church at large. And you see here, he says, I want to keep you from the hour of testing which is about to come upon the whole world. So we want to break that statement down a little bit. Notice he says, I want to keep you, he's speaking of the churches, the church, from the hour of testing. Now just a little bit of original language here. That word from in the original is the word ek, E-K. Ek means out of or from. He could have chosen the preposition dia, which means through, I will keep you through this period of testing, but he doesn't do that. He could have used the preposition en, E-N, which means in, I will keep you in that hour of testing. No, he said, I will keep you from, very significant language here, the hour of testing. But also I want you to notice that little phrase, the hour of testing. He's basically saying as a promise to the churches, 
I'm going to keep you from the very time period. The very time period. And then he says, which is about to come upon the whole world. I'm going to keep you from the time period of worldwide judgment, worldwide trouble. And in the book of Revelation, you can start in chapter 6 and go on, and we'll see in more detail what all of that is. Now, here's my point. The only way to avoid a time in which the whole world is going to undergo worldwide judgment, the only way you can avoid that time is to be located in heaven. And I believe that the New Testament teaches that the Lord Jesus is going to snatch up the body of Christ from earth to heaven before the seven-year tribulation begins beforehand. And that's what we often would call the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 is one passage that describes that event. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52 also describes that event. Now, just as a reminder, remember that the day of the Lord has as its focus the nation of Israel. In fact, if you're in the book of the Revelation, there is no mention of the church, even though we see it being mentioned in the first three chapters, there's no mention of the church in the events that occur from Revelation chapter 4 to Revelation chapter 21. You see church, 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 but then once everything begins, there's no mention of the church any longer in the book of the Revelation. And so the question Will the body of Christ be on earth to face end times wrath? And I believe the answer is no. Why? Because we are not destined for end times wrath. And Jesus rescued us from end times wrath. Now, when we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, what is happening is Peter is giving us a sneak peek into these end times events. Why does he do that? If we're not going to be there as the church, why does he do that? Well, there's a dual thrust reason why he does that. Number one, we've seen this in our study. He gives us this sneak peek to change our attitudes and actions in the now. That's one of the reasons why he does it. A second reason why he does it, which we have seen, is to deepen our concern, to deepen our concern about our family, our friends, and others in the world. So that's that's a long introduction just to set us up to look at the final verses we have, which I have entitled Final Perspective. We see this in verses 14 to 18. I'm going to read those verses, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. Peter says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, speaking, or rather according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking of them, of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, 
which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So as we look at these verses, they break, I believe, into three parts. First of all, we have a twofold summary conclusion that he gives to us in verse 14 and the first half of verse 15. Remember, the verses are not inspired. It's just the way we've divided it up. Secondly, we see the consistency of Scripture in the second part of verse 15 and verse 16. And then, thirdly, we're going to see a double parting exhortation that comes to us in verses 17 and 18. So let's begin by looking at this twofold summary conclusion in verse 14 and verse 15. Look at verse 14 with me. Notice it begins with a key word, the word therefore. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, well, what would the these things be? Well, you just back up to the previous verse where he's talking about the day in which there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and there's going to be an eternal state where righteousness dwells, where righteousness permanently resides. And he's saying, therefore, since you look for these things, here comes the first command. Be diligent to be found by him spotless and blameless in peace. The NIV, the Net Bible, the ESV say at peace, spotless and blameless at peace. What is he talking about here? Well, when he talks about being spotless, he is addressing our character. You remember what character is? Character is what we are when nobody is looking. He's not talking about, when he's talking about being spotless here, he's not talking about absolute sinlessness because I cannot achieve that, nor can you. But rather what he's talking about is having a life of integrity. And then he says, to be blameless. This refers to our reputation. Our reputation is what others see. Our character is what we are when nobody's looking. Our reputation is what other people see. And I think here's the idea here. When we have integrity, listen here carefully, when we have integrity of character, when we have integrity of reputation, I think we're at peace with the Lord. And if you want to know a little bit more of what might be involved in all of that, I would direct your attention to Psalm 15 because it gives some specifics in terms of character and reputation that a follower of God should have. Well, then that leads us to command number two. The first one was to be diligent, to be found by him spotless and blameless. Command number two, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. By the way, this command here, regard, is a present tense command in the original language. The idea is keep on regarding, don't just do it once, but keep on regarding as a pattern of our life, the patience of our Lord as salvation. What does that really mean? 
It's a little bit of a difficult phrase to interpret, but I believe the best interpretation of it is he is backing up to verse 9. Remember where it says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, but rather he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish. I think the idea is that the Lord, as it says in the New Living Translation, is giving more time so that more people can repent. Just to delay his return means more opportunity for salvation for people. And I think he's just saying, as believers, we need to maintain that perspective. We need to keep on embracing the idea when we think, why didn't the Lord come back? Why didn't the Lord come back? Well, we just need to remember that his patience is really a picture of more opportunity for salvation for people. And so we have there this twofold summary conclusion. The second thing we want to take a look at this morning, though, is this idea of the consistency of Scripture. We see it in the middle part of verse 15 down through verse 16. So look at verse 15 with me. Notice it's in the middle of the verse, he speaks of our beloved brother, Paul. Now, on a human level, that's a little unusual that he would have that view. And, and you would say, why is that? Well, you do remember that in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, Peter is the key leader in the early church. That shifts in Acts chapter 13 all the way through the end of the book where suddenly now Paul is the key leader in the early church. And how are we as human beings, you know? It's very easy when someone replaces you as the most prominent member to maybe harbor some ill feelings towards that. And then you throw in what we learned from Galatians chapter 2, that Paul had to confront Peter about some of his hypocrisy at one point, and you can just see how there would be perhaps some real ill feelings from Peter to Paul. But that's not what we have. He calls him our beloved brother, Paul. There's no jealousy. There's no competition. Peter's perspective is we are on the same team. And I want you to know that our staff really is committed to that same view. We view our fellow pastors in our community not as our competitors, but rather we're on the same team. Notice it says in verse 15, he says, our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. And you say, well, I, I don't remember, you know, Paul's letter to this group of people. But here's the thing to remember. By the time Second Peter is written, all of Paul's letters had previously been written, except for one, which is Second Timothy. So all of Paul's letters had already been written before 2 Peter was written. And you know what would happen in the churches is they would have to hand copy them, but they would circulate these letters because it was Scripture. In fact, the book of Romans, interestingly enough, was written a decade before 2 Peter and you have books like Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, 
all being written to people in the same region that the target audience of 2 Peter would be found. So again, these letters were copied. They were passed around. And so that's why he could say, well, he wrote to you. It doesn't mean there was necessarily a missing letter. It was just the way the churches operated at the time. And he says, verse 16, as in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. Well, what, again, is the topic of these things? Well, future prophetic events. Um, A call to live strategic and godly lives in light of the future prophetic events. And then there's such an encouraging phrase there in the middle of verse 16, it's easy to miss, He says of Paul's letters, in which are some things hard to understand. Now, doesn't that make you feel a little bit better? It does me, because sometimes we struggle with some of these concepts. What do these things really mean? How do we really understand them? And Peter says, I sometimes struggle really understanding everything that Paul was writing. Now, what particular subjects matter maybe was he referring to? I don't really know. I don't think anyone really knows. But here's a couple of suggestions. Maybe he was referring to the whole idea of this rapture of the church, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe he was saying that's a little bit difficult to understand how all of that's going to happen. We're going to have people who are alive and they, they jump up to meet Jesus in the air, and then the dead in Christ are going to rise up and meet, and it's going to be a giant party there? I mean, how does all of that work? Or, Or maybe he's referring to things that are hard to understand as like positional truth, as it says in Ephesians 2, 6, and Colossians 3, 13. It says, or rather 3, 1 to 3, it says there that right now we are seated in the heavenly places. And you go, wait a second, We're seated right here at Wildwood Community Church. How am I seated in heavenly places? Well, there's positional truth, and our spiritual position is up there, but our physical activity, see, that's a little bit hard to understand. Or how about this one? Another one that might be a little bit difficult to understand is this whole idea of election. A lot of believers struggle with that as it's talked about in Romans chapter 9. What does all that mean? He chose Jacob, and he didn't choose Esau, and and man, that's it. I don't understand all that. See, Peter says, these are just some guesses on my part, what he might have been talking about specifically, but Peter says some of what Paul wrote is is kind of hard to understand. And then notice he says, of these things that Paul wrote about, the untaught and the unstable distort them. This is this consistency of Scripture idea. Uh, When it says the untaught in some translations, some other ones have the word the ignorant. The ignorant, the untaught, the unstable distort them. It's a very colorful term, this verb distort. Uh, It was used outside of the New Testament for torturing someone and twisting their body on the rack. Most of us are I didn't know the idea of the rack where you would put someone on there and you would torture and twist their body. And that's the very verb that is used here. The picture is one of distorting and twisting texts of Scripture around. Getting them to say what you want them to say. Resting them out, tearing them out from the context. By the way, those are classic false teacher tactics to do that. 
And notice in verse 16, he goes on to say, they also do this with the rest of the scriptures. Now remember, the New Testament writers were apparently aware that they were writing scripture, and the New Testament canon was beginning to form, and these tactics of the false teachers not only apply to that new scripture that was beginning to form, but also to the Old Testament. And that's what they do. They twist and distort all of it. And notice in verse 16, he says there, they do this to their own destruction. You might go back to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 when it's talking about the false teachers there, and it mentions that same idea. They're doing it to their own destruction. When they are out to distort and twist Scripture, it has ruinous ramifications in their life. It may not be immediately, but it will be there. And so we've been looking at, first of all, the twofold summary conclusion that he gives in verse 14 and into 15. Then we've looked at the consistency of Scripture in verse 15, the rest of it, through verse 16. Now we want to look at the double parting exhortation that he gives in verses 17 and 18. And that double parting exhortation is for you and I to guard and to grow. Let's look at these verses again. Look at verse 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says in verse 17, knowing this beforehand, I'm giving you a warning ahead of time. Now, this is a warning not only to the people who existed at the time that Peter was writing, but this is a warning for you and a warning for me. And that warning is, he says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. And again, that takes us back to what he covered in chapter two, where there was a warning about false teachers and their strategies. And we as believers in Jesus Christ need to be on our guard. We need to be alert. That's the whole argument of Second Peter chapter two. Another place that you see this being emphasized is Paul in Titus chapter one, verses 10 and 11 where he says, many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers who must be silenced, there are many of them, because they're upsetting whole families. They're teaching things they should not teach for sordid gain. That means they're doing what they're doing for money purposes. And notice he says in verse 17, we need to be on our guard And he says, so that you are not carried away. The idea is to be led astray by the era of unprincipled men. And notice the result is by being led astray there that you fall from your own steadfastness. Now, sometimes people get confused here and they think, well, he's talking about potentially losing our salvation. 
No, no, no. He's not talking about losing our salvation. He's talking about falling from spiritual steadfastness, falling from spiritual stability, uh, losing our secure spiritual footing. And he was concerned about that. And if anybody needed to be concerned about that, it would be Peter, right? Because Peter had his own fall from steadfastness. You remember that? Remember when he denied even knowing Jesus three times? And if you think about his own fall from spiritual steadfastness, a big part of his fall was due to self-confidence. Remember when Jesus basically said to the disciples, some of you are going to, to fall away? And you remember Peter's response as he looked around the room. Yeah, maybe, maybe the rest of these dudes, but not me. I'll never fall away. And we need to be careful about having that same attitude ourselves. That's why Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stands, they could never get me, take heed lest he fall. So we're seeing here a double parting exhortation and the first one is to be on guard. Keep on, literally, being on guard. Never stop being on guard against a spiritual pratfall, against a spiritual detour where we find ourselves out here in the spiritual weeds. Earlier, if you go back two chapters, he said something interesting in chapter one in verse 10. He says, as long as you practice these things, which is really referring back in chapter one to verses five to seven, what does it say next? You will never stumble. So if we want to avoid that, we back up to chapter one, look at verses five to seven, and those are the things we need to be practicing. And as long as we're practicing those things in our spiritual life, we will not stumble. And so we're giving this double parting exhortation. The first one is for you and I to be on our guard. And the second one is to keep on growing, to keep on growing. And we see that there in verse 18. Notice he says, but also grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, this is a present command it means this is to be an ongoing focus in, in our life. I should never lose sight of the fact that I need to keep on growing. I need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe he's saying we need to be doing that individually. I need to be committed to that. But we also need to be doing that corporately. And you can look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, where it talks about the importance of corporate spiritual growth. That's why it's not just an individual thing in the Christian life. Sure, I need 
I need to keep on growing and have that as an ongoing focus in my life, but we need to have that as a church family also to keep on growing spiritually, which, by the way, underscores the value of the local church, the value of having a spiritual family. If you want to grow to your maximum in your own spiritual life, it's not just something you do individually, it's something that you do corporately. And part of the wisdom of God is he puts us in a local church, he puts us in a spiritual family, and that spiritual family can assist us in our growth. And then you might say, well, what are the resources? What resources can I draw upon? Well, back in chapter one, see how it all ties together. We see that the resources are his power. He has given us ability and strength through the Holy Spirit who is present in our life. And also part of the resources are his promises as he discussed in those first few verses of chapter one. Those are the resources. Now, if you're practically minded like I am, you might say, well, what would that look like in my individual life if I am committed to keep on growing? Well, one passage that gives us some insight into what it might look like would be Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13, and you could encompass also the surrounding context to verses 9 and 13, but here's part of what it would look like if we're going to keep on growing. We abhor what is evil. That means we hate, we dislike what is evil. We dodge around it. We cling to what is good. We be devoted to one another in brotherly love. See, this is a good list to just use as a comparison list for where you are spiritually yourself. Not lagging behind in diligence. We're not just coasting our way through. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Is that true of you right now? Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. How about this one? Contributing to the needs of the saints, what we do with our money. Practicing hospitality. Those are some of the things that are involved in us keeping on growing. Now, I want to I read to you a quote from Harry Ironside, the classic expositor, and this is just such a great quote because you have to think about this and meditate on it, but it's so true. Here's what he said. He said, spiritual growth is the unfailing panacea for all spiritual ills. Now, just ponder that for a while. I have a spiritual issue in my life Spiritual growth is the unfailing panacea to that, to all spiritual ills in our life. Now, we have looked at a lot of Scripture in Second Peter. And I want to talk about some life response. I'm just going to draw everything together here. What life response can we have to what? Peter has been teaching us. Well, the first life response, which I've said several times, is to trust in Jesus as your rescuer. Jesus desires to be your rescuer from sin and judgment. And I, and I don't know where everybody is coming from, but I want to remember that that's part of the response that Peter says we should have, to trust in Jesus as our rescuer. Let me put it this way. 
there are still seats available on the ark of salvation. Going back to that picture of the ark in the great flood. And we enter into the ark of salvation, which is the person of Christ. We do that by faith, by trusting in him. I am so, so very glad that Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 is there in Scripture. It says this, everyone. That includes you, me, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Doesn't make any difference what our background is. Doesn't make any difference what our life has been like. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Second life response is to live in light of who you are. And often we lose sight of this. We really do. And Jeff Kinley, I think, does a great job of summarizing who we are. Here's what he says. We are a redeemed, blood-bought people, washed clean of all sin, forgiven, made righteous in the Father's sight. This is exciting stuff freed from condemnation, sealed by the Holy Spirit, commissioned by his Son, entrusted with the truth and treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and commanded to penetrate our culture and the darkness that defines it. And so as we've looked at all of this in 2 Peter chapter 3, that's part of what we need to do is to live in light of who we are. We need to remember, as it says, that we are Jesus-sent ones. Do you feel that every week as you begin your week, as it says in John 17, 8? We are Jesus' witnesses, as it says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. We are Jesus' royal ambassadors, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. Is that our mindset as we enter into our week every week? We are as witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. I like to call that here, there, and everywhere. See, so here's the idea, men and women. Many people may never read a Bible. And many people may never enter a church. But they will see and read us. And then the third life response is to honor and glorify Jesus. We see the very final words that Peter ever recorded on earth when he says, to him be the glory, verse 18, both now and to the day of eternity, amen. Paul says something very similar in 2 Timothy 4.18. He said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Listen, men and women, it glorifies and honors him when we, as we've seen today in this passage, are men, women, and young people of integrity, verse 14. It glorifies and honors him when we stay true to the scriptures, verse 16. It glorifies and honors him when we humbly guard our hearts against false teaching and spiritual stumbling, verse 17. And it glorifies and honors him when we are committed to keep growing individually and corporately, as it says in verse 18. Peter wants us to remember what Jesus said. 
He said, I'll be back. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you for the practicality of it. And I just counted a privilege for us to spend time in the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you're who you are. We thank you that you use us in the way that you use us. It just mystifies me is why you do, but you do. And we want to give you praise. We want to give you honor by how we live our life for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 